listening to Embassy City Church's audio podcast. We pray God speaks to you through this message and his word today. For more information on our church, please visit us at embassycity.com. chapter 1, and the Bible reads like this, beginning at verse 4. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. Everybody say wait. Wait. Let's pause right there. I love wait, that word wait, because it's a good Bible word. Amen? When you hear wait, it's like, oh, wait. Is anybody waiting on God for anything right now? Let me tell you something. Newsflash, your Christian life is going to consist of a lot of waiting. A lot of waiting. God does so much. I got a good amen back there, huh? God does so much in our wait. You don't know the power and the strength of the weight on your weight. Sometimes we underestimate the weight that's on our God produces so much. He grows so much in us. And I learned that the only thing harder than waiting on God is wishing that you had. There's weight on your weight. The disciples are in a situation. Now, walk with me for a minute because I'm going to give you guys a foundational piece of history so that we can lay the framework and the backdrop of this text so that I can go into a very practical understanding of our role as the church, which is to be a disciple and make a disciple. Amen? To be a disciple and make a disciple. I know that you think that it's only the pastor's job to make a disciple. But I came to tell you this morning that, no, it's your job to make a disciple. Jesus said, you go what? And make disciples of all nations. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the church, the followers of Jesus. It is your job to make disciples. And so I've created this this uh, acronym that really will help us as followers of Jesus Christ to go and be a disciple, but also make disciples. And it's something that I think you guys can use and duplicate in your ministries, whether it be to your, your, your sons and daughters, your grandkids, your, your nieces and nephews, your, own, your whoever you're discipling in your family or on your job or on your teams or whatever sphere of influence the Lord has given you. This is a good uh, a good curriculum or a good template, if you will, to help you in your role as being a disciple. You know the great thing about being a disciple and being a disciple maker? Listen to me, church. Is that I've learned this in life. Preaching in, a, in, in big arenas, rallies across the, the world, doing different amazing things. Like it's all good to impress people. And you can do that from afar. But you truly only impact people from up close. You can impress people all you want to from afar. And that's what this world's about as it relates to like social media and Snapchat and Instagram and all this stuff. It's all about just impressing as many people as you can. And then saying, man, I got, I've got some swag and I'm dripping in this and I got a little drip. Came through dripping. Came through dripping. Came through dripping. Good. Because, because I've got a, a, a couple followers, and so I feel good about me, and my life matters a little bit because I've got, I've got some followers. 
But Jesus' understanding of what it meant to be a disciple and make disciples was very different than our understanding of what we have created in this world as it relates to true impact. You see, Jesus was a rabbi. He was a teacher. And he understood that in order to be a teacher, you had to also be taught. So in their understanding of, of, of being a rabbi, rabbis were actually people that had to go through a system of Jewish upbringing and education that was very rigorous in their teaching and in their fellowship of their, of, of their master. I mean, it was like this. Jewish uh, teaching was so deep, and they m- tried to mimic their, their rabbis so much that they would literally not try, watch this, not try to make their own footprints as they would follow their rabbi. They would want to be like their rabbi so much that they would try to step in the footprint of the rabbi. So when they're following their rabbi and they're in their master's dust, they would literally walk in the footsteps. Are y'all with me on this? Of their rabbi. They didn't want to make their own footprint. They only wanted to step in the footprint of their master. They wanted to follow so much after their master that there were, uh, Bible history tells us that there were actually Jewish rabbis. I thought this was kind of cool, just a random fact. But there were actually Jewish rabbis, guys, that... Sometimes they would have like a withered toe or something or like a crooked toe and they couldn't and then so they kind of walked funny, you know, and they kind of walked with a limp or something. And the followers of that rabbi, perfect toes, no limp in their life, but they wanted to mimic their rabbi so much that they would step in their steps and even begin to swag walk a little bit. Just because the rabbi had a swag swag walk all of a sudden they got they got a little It'll lean to their walk because they were following after their rabbi. So much of our weight, so much of our lives is about Jesus forming Christ inside of us. Come on, somebody. God is developing Jesus incarnate in us. What happened in Mary is happening in you every day. That the only begotten son is being formed, Christ, in us, the hope of glory, being formed in us as we are his disciples. How does he do that? He does that through the power of his spirit. Jesus was, Jesus was <clears throat> uh, the, 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 the rabbi to people who followed him. They're racking this system. They're, they're rocking this governmental system. People are freaking out about this guy and all that. He's flipping the world inside out, upside down. That's what the Bible says about the disciples, that they turn the world inside out. And here they are, right? Here they are, these followers of Jesus. Now they're in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. Jesus has went to the cross. He, he died. He rose on the third day. Amen. He rose on the third day. The Bible history and history itself tells us that Jesus got up out of the grave. Whether you want to believe it or not or whether the other religions believe it or not, the fact of the matter is Jesus got up out of the grave. It's not just Christians that believe that. Jesus definitely rose from the grave. Now, people make up different ideas about how he did it. Some say he was the Houdini of his day. He was just a master escape artist, and he was able to get out of that grave and roll the stone away and step out. And, and the truth of the matter is, Jesus got up out of the grave and made appearances to people after his resurrection. He made appearances, and it's, it's, his, it's historically proven that 
over, over these days between the, the Passover and this day of Pentecost, he made, he made appearances. He went away. The Bible says he went away and he told his disciples, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go away and I want you to wait on the promise of the Holy Spirit. He's saying, I am who I say I am and I'm going to do what I said I would do. Here's, what I, here's I, what I need you to do. I need you to go wait on me. So they go, and we think of it, I think oftentimes it's been painted to me. I didn't grow up in church, but when I, when, when I started going to church, I started realizing that there's some things painted from the Bible that as, after I started really studying the Bible, it was kind of depicted in a little bit of a different way, and this was one of them. It was like these disciples, I thought in my mind it was painted to me, they were up there in the upper room, they were praying. Can you imagine them? They were slinging oil and they were praying. They were having a prayer meeting, y'all. It was a Holy Ghost-filled prayer meeting. They were waiting on God, believing God. Come by your spirit, Lord, like you said you would. You know what they were doing? That's not the picture of the truth of what was really taking place in this moment. They were actually in the upper room Waiting on God, shaking in their boots, scared. Because the world was waiting to make a mockery of them and do to them what they had just done to Jesus. And so they're literally waiting like, Lord, if you don't come through, it's, it's not going down. Like literally, I, I don't want to see the end of this. The result that's getting ready to happen in our lives, if you don't show up, it's going to be bad. And so they're literally in the upper room, scared, waiting on God. And the Bible says that <clears throat> while they're doing this, Jesus <clears throat> says that John baptized you with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 6, therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will it you this time restore the kingdom of, to Israel? And so pause real quick. So here's what they're saying. They basically say, like, they're trying to figure out what God is doing. I don't know about you, but that would have been me. Okay, Lord, you said this. Now, what does that mean? What are you doing, Lord? And here's what Jesus says to them. It's not for you. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put under his own authority. He says, basically, don't mind yourself with worrying about how it's going to work out. When's it going to work out? What's, what's going to happen? Lord, give me a little inkling of an understanding of what's going on. He says, stop tripping. They've been doing that forever. I thought it was just me and our generation. Amen? They've been trying to figure out God forever. What are you doing, Lord? And he says, it's not for you to figure it all out. Here's what is for you. But you shall receive, what's the next word, y'all? Come on, somebody wake up this morning. I said, but, but you shall receive power. He says, that's what I want you to be mindful of. I don't want you to worry about what's going on, how everything's going to work out. Here's where I want your focus to be, church. And that's what the Lord is saying to us this morning. I came all the way to Irving, Texas, just to tell you guys, God wants us to be focused on power. He said, be filled with power. Don't worry about how it's all going to work out. Don't worry about what's going on or how, every, how the chips are going to fall into place. You be mindful of growing in power. This you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Somebody say power. Power. 
I learned, guys, that most of this Christian walk is, is about literally learning how to turn my fearful moments into powerful ones. I've learned that walking with Jesus, and I've been doing it for 20 plus years, I, I, I need to tell a little bit of my story. I didn't grow up in church. I was raised in a family that was an amazing family. My dad was a community leader. He was my coach. Um, my mom, amazing mom. I had a younger sister, older brother, middle child. So I have the middle child syndrome. I'm the peacemaker. I was a pastor in the making before I ever was a pastor. And, and my, my family was great. My dad was a community leader, like I said, and a, and a coach. And I never saw my parents fight. I never even heard any arguments or anything. And one day... How many of y'all know life happens to everybody? Life hits everybody. One day they set us, they set us down, and I was 13 years old, they set us down and said, we're getting a divorce. Well, it was like, what? When I say all hell broke loose in my life, my perfect little family, my perfect little leave it to beaver family turned into the Adams family overnight. Da -da -da -da. Like, overnight. <laughs> because we went from, you know, no arguing or whatever to an absolute chaos situation. My perfect dad got thrown in prison six months later for selling cocaine. Why? Not because he was, uh, you know, a drug addict or anything. He literally didn't have a place to turn. When his family, when he was losing his family, he felt he was losing everything. And he turned to the bars and to the drugs looking for answers. We didn't have Jesus as a foundation. We ran from church people and hid in our own house. People come, church folks would come knocking on the door. We'd, we'd hide like cockroaches when the lights come on. And, 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 and so I grew up with an understanding and an idea conditioned that church and church people, were, it was all good and great, respect them, but hide from them. They're, that's not us. And so <clears throat> Jesus, you know, great guy, right, on, on Easter and on Christmas, I got gifts on both of his days. I got gifts from Santa on Christmas and Easter Bunny brought me stuff on, on Easter, but that was all I knew of Jesus. My mom is going through a situation where she's looking and looking and searching for fulfillment in relationships. Nobody's turning to, to faith because we didn't have a faith foundation. I went to um, <clears throat> a, a Fellowship of Christian Athletes football and basketball camp at the age of 17, and when I went there, I heard the gospel, the G-O-S-P-E-L of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ came, lived a perfect life, died a horrible death, death on a cross. Now, mind you, this is my very first time hearing this. Now, I understand you guys are wearing the Bible belt. This is stuff you've been raised on, but can you imagine I grew up in America and never even heard that Jesus saves that Jesus came as God's expression into the earth to bring us into relationship, personal devotion with God. I'm hearing this stuff for the very first time in my entire life. I had never seen a Bible, touched a Bible, never went into a church. I was literally as unchurched as you could possibly imagine. Well, sports for me was my ark. My, I had so many things going on. I was that kid that everybody, everybody wanted their mom Everybody's mom wanted their daughter to date. I was an all-star athlete. I was a straight-A student. Everything looked so great on the outside. But as a teenager, I was trying to keep my family together. I was trying to make everybody happy. And I was trying to keep my daddy alive and keep my mom fulfilled. My brother was like, you guys are all crazy. I'm out of here. I was trying to parent my little sister. And I became the emotional carrier of my family at the age of 13. And so for four years... 
I'm, I'm, I'm carrying this to the point to where I got ulcers, to the point where I ended up in the hospital. I'm crying myself to sleep at night. But the only thing, but everybody else thought everything was great. The only thing I had to bury myself in was sports. It was the ark that carried me. And so I got an invite to go to the Fellowship of Christian Athletes football and basketball camp. I went to go play ball. I was going because I was going to play ball, and it was all good. Like the Jesus stuff, okay, whatever, but I was going to play ball. Well, that was the night I heard the gospel for the first time. I heard the preacher talking about forgiveness of sins, and I thought that was amazing. But then, but then he was like, you know, God came. He lived a perfect life to draw you into relationship with his, with, with, through Jesus with, with the Father. And I'm hearing all this stuff for the first time, and he forgives you of your sins. And if you accept him into your heart, you'll be able to live in eternity forever. And I needed forgiveness of my sins, and I love that. Like, you mean I get to live forever in heaven with God? Like, forever? Like, forever, ever? Like, <laughs> forever, ever, forever. Like, that's a long time, right? But then there was another part of the gospel. That was certainly me. Sign me up. I need forgiveness of sin. I want to live forever with Jesus. I love that. But then there was another part, and the preacher was standing just on the edge of, this, of the stage just like this. And he said, and those of you who don't have a relationship with Jesus, he said, not only does God forgive you of your sins through the perfect payment of Jesus Christ, he said, but he also will take your life, and when you walk into relationship with him, he will give you a purpose and a rhyme and a reason to your life. And I was like, wait a minute. Hold on. I literally wanted to raise my hand and ask him like a teacher in the class because I'd never been to church. I wanted to be like, wait a minute, sir. You don't know what's going on in my life. You don't understand the craziness and the chaos and the hurt and the pain. There's no way that God could make sense and a purpose for someone like me. And he said, and I was, man, and as he continued to preach about purpose and how God, when you enter into a relationship with Jesus, how he can take your life and redeem it and make it worth something. I was like, I just wanted him to stop preaching and tell me how to get on the team. And he, and he used football analogies and, and basketball terms and stuff. And he was like, and if you want to be on this team, he said, get out of your seat. Don't worry about what your friends are thinking. Get out of your seat and come down to this altar and get on God's team. And all you have to do is ask him to come into your heart to be Lord of your life. I'll pray the prayer, but let them be your words from your heart. And Jesus will come in and he'll live with you forever. And y'all, I ran down to that altar like the roadrunner. I got down on my knees and I asked Jesus to come into my heart with tears flowing down my face passionately, desperately asking for Jesus Christ to save me. And let me tell you something. You might get my passion up here and be like, man, he's really trying to preach. No, I'm so passionate because Jesus saved my life. He came into my, this is real. Like, amen. Like this gospel that we preach, this gospel that we, that we gather over today is real. The Bible says in Romans chapter one, that inside of this gospel is the power to save anybody who will believe. Inside the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, the hearing of this truth, resident inside of that is the power to save us. Jesus came into my heart. He saved me that day. I got a Bible. I was so unchurched, I didn't even know you were supposed to go to church. 
I got a Bible. I went back to my house. And I started, and I was, it was taught to me relationship, 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 relationship with God through Jesus, relationship. And I understood that. I left that camp knowing I need a relationship with God through Jesus. And so I would get in my Bible, and I was going through something every day, and there were little athletic helps that said, you know, if you're going through this or you're going through that, here's where you look and you find help in the scriptures. And so I would dive into the word. And listen, y'all, the Holy Spirit discipled me one-on-one, never stepped into a church, never heard a pastor other than that guy that got me saved, never, Jesus, through his spirit, please hear me this morning, Jesus, through his spirit, saved me and discipled me through his scriptures. Every single night, I'll never forget it, I would, I, I would sit there, now I know, I have more of an understanding of, of what was taking place, but then I didn't know there would be times where I, God would lead me into his word and I'd be in his word and I would just start bursting out with tears and flow, the issues of my heart flowing out and I'm going, what in the world? It was all just my own stuff. I didn't share it with anybody. Nobody knew what I was doing. Nobody even knew I was saved, but I was in a relationship with God. And there were moments even when the glory of God would come in my room. Like, I know it now because I've been in some pretty amazing moves of God, like around the world and in church services and different moments where literally the Shekinah of glory would fill the room. And just the manifested presence of God, the weight of his glory in the room. Y'all, I had moments like that, one-on-one with Jesus in my room. So you know what it proves to me? It proves to me that if we truly desire to have a relationship with God and pursue his presence and dive into a relationship with him, he will, he will show up. He will fulfill you. He will disciple you. He will father you. He will. Amen? Amen. And so it's, it was hard for me when I went to Bible college because when I got to Bible college, I learned quickly like, whoa, everybody doesn't believe the way I believe. I didn't know doctrine, and I didn't know theology. All I knew was the scriptures. And I thought everybody had the same experiences. I thought this was what Jesus did for everybody. So I'm thinking everybody has the same experiences as I do, and I got into theology class and different things where people were arguing and, and, and doing different stuff over the word, and I'm just like, whoa. I, I, I bowed out of that stuff because I couldn't argue the scriptures but I had experience rooted in the scriptures that made me, made me unwavering as it related to my faith and my understanding of Jesus. Amen? And so I'm saying to us this morning, God wants to fill us. He wants us to experience him. He doesn't want us to just live a life that, where, where you hear about power, but you experience power. You experience the power of God in your life. So much of my life has been not understanding what God is doing, but just following his leading in my life. And him working it out, the game plan that he draws up is so much better than anything we could ever draw up ourselves. And so this morning I want us to dive into an acronym that's going to help us understand how to grow in power. Power. Everybody say power. 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 P is for prayer. Everybody say prayer. P is for prayer. Prayer. If you want to grow in power in your relationship with God, if you want to grow in power, you've got to grow in your prayer life. Now, for the sake of our conversation, guys, this morning, I don't want us to think of prayer as 
just, you know, the, the normal definition of just open communication with God. That we, I have a constant line, it's open to God, and we're, we're, we communicate and things like that. If you want to grow in power, that's all good and great. But if you want to grow in power, you have to start setting aside time to make an appointment with God where he shows up. And you show up. And what I learned is that every appointment I made with God, every single time I show up, he's there. I've never made time with God. I'm talking about setting aside your phone, turning off TVs, getting, getting in the presence of God where you pursue him one-on-one in your prayer life. As a Christian, as a believer, as a temple, the house of prayer, this is what it shall be called. I say this all the time. A Christian without a prayer life is like a cell phone without service. All you can do is play games on it. You've got to carve out time with God. And you've got to create, listen, you've got to create, and the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 3, and when he says a very familiar passage of Scripture, and we 320, and it says, Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above anything we could ask or think according to the what? Power that works within us. You know what that is? That's a prayer Scripture. Because he's talking about intimacy with God. And basically what he says is your intimacy with God will create an expanded capacity for God, which will allow you to have power to be used by God. The more time, let me break it down for our language, the more time you spend with God, the more powerful you're going to be in God. Listen, here's what God sees. The Bible says he looks, the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro amongst the whole earth, looking to show himself strong in a heart that is loyal to him. So when God wants to use somebody, when he wants to execute his will in the earth, he's not going to look past the church. The church is the vehicle that he wants to drive his will into the earth through. But I'm wondering if he can look, and when he's looking, can he find somebody that has created a history with him in a private place? God, help me preach this morning. Because as we understand, your public display of power, that's not the goal. The goal is intimacy with God. So that you create an availability for God, for him to flow through you as a vessel at his will, at his choosing. And how you do it is you carve out time. You will not grow in power, church. I'm trying to help us this morning. You will not grow in power if you do not have a prayer life. A prayer life is carved out time to create a history with God in his presence. I, can I share a testimony real quick? This, my, my dad, as I said, he wasn't, he wasn't saved. And so after I got saved at the FCA camp, um, I came back, y'all, and I was on fire. I wanted everybody in my family to know this love of Jesus. So I'm preaching to everybody. And I, of course, got discouraged because they're looking at me and wrinkling their foreheads and being like, man, what in the world happened to you? You lost your mind. <laughs> you got crazy at this camp. But I knew the pain and the hurt inside my daddy. My dad, see, I, I don't have time to tell the whole story, but my dad's dad killed himself when my dad was 17. It's interesting that I got saved at 17. But I was so afraid that my dad was going to do the same thing. Because my dad, when he killed, when my dad's dad killed himself, my mom said, they were high school sweethearts, my mom said that my daddy went into a room, shut the door, and didn't come out for two weeks. And the enemy, can you imagine what the enemy was doing inside his mind and heart? Just driving in all kinds of torment and things of that nature. And what happened was my dad developed a lack of 
coping ability. So he just learned that in every problem in life, here's what you do. You slam the door and you go in your room. And ultimately what happened is it caused the death of my parents' relationship. Because they didn't fight, they didn't have a lot of issues, but my mom died emotionally because my daddy wasn't available. And so it created this perpetual generational curse that was trying to live and is trying to live through me. Do y'all understand what I'm saying? But my dad, I went back and I knew his hurt. I knew the pain harbored inside of his heart. And it's interesting because as he was packing and packing and packing and packing inside of his heart, all the pains of life, your heart's like a, an emotional duffel bag. The more you pack into your heart, eventually what happens when you pack, pack, pack stuff in a duffel bag, eventually the zipper just goes boom, and my daddy's heart exploded. Had a heart attack, a massive heart attack. They thought he was going to die. I went into the room. They were pumping blood back into his system after he had a, a quadruple bypass and a valve replacement. And he was only 40-something years old. And, and I'm laying there, and I know Jesus. And I said, God, please, I've been witnessing to my dad since the day I got back from FCA camp. When I was 17 years old, I've been praying, and I've been, I've been seeking God. I mean, y'all, I would pray. And I'm not doing this to, like, you know, put... You know, give me a pat on the back for my good, faithful service to the Lord. But listen, God set my heart on fire for my family. This ministry didn't start. The ministry of my life didn't start with a, a desire to see the world saved. It started with a desire to see my family saved. And so when God reaches you, he's really going for your family. And I'm sitting there, and I'm praying every night for my daddy. And I'm praying. I'm in the room, in the hospital room. They're, they're telling me he's not going to live. He's not going to live. And I said, God, please, please, you, I, you, we, you, we've got to save him. And I'm praying. He ends up getting, getting well, but living with a repaired heart. And for 17 years, y'all, I prayed for my dad every night. Every night. And there were days where literally I just get down on my knee. All right, Lord, well, just, you know, my dad, you know him. He, you created him. Save him. Because I was getting discouraged. Because there were days where I'd go and I'd witness to him, and he'd wrinkle up his forehead, and he'd bite his tongue and grit his teeth, and he'd say, God can't be good. How could God be good? And all this has happened to me in my life. He didn't understand the concept of a good God and a horrible life, a very hurtful life. And I just kept praying. And every time I would pray, it seemed like my dad would get more hardened and more hardened and further away from the gospel. And what happened is my dad was sick. He had diabetes. And so he started going through a process of amputations. And it was so hard watching my dad through a five to eight year span get his toes cut off, then his, then, his, then his foot cut off, then his knee, then his leg, then they started on the other leg, and it went surgery after surgery. And I'm sitting here watching my hero athlete daddy get all mutilated, and I'm going, God, please save him. And I'm, I'm weeping before the Lord and asking God, please save him, save him. And God said this, and I'm not saying that God did that to him, but I want you to hear something a little bit deeper. God said, you're looking at his body, but I'm going for his heart. Because every single time I would watch this, every single time I saw my dad, his, his, he was losing limbs, every single time I saw that take place in his life, I saw him become a little more soft to God. And I was like, this is amazing. And there was a time, he was probably his 10th or 12th time in ICU, and the doctor's telling us he wasn't going to make it. I went in there and I said, Lord, please, like, uh, God, please give me the courage to witness to him again. I went in there. So 17 years after praying for him every night and getting discouraged, and I went in there, and I said, Dad, and I'm shaking in my boots, y'all. I'm just being honest. I'm a preacher. I'm a pastor by this time. 
I'm shaking in my boots witnessing to my dad because I had been rejected so many times. And I'm like, Dad, Jesus loves you. He wants a relationship with you. He desires to save you. And I'm sharing the gospel with him again for the 50-something time. And I'm just waiting for a, get out of my room. I know, you know. And he, he looks up at me. He goes, Chad, I already did that. And he rolls back over. <laughs> and I, already, I already asked Jesus into my heart. And he rolls back over. And I was just like, wait a minute. And he goes, I don't know if I did it right. But he said, I, I, I asked him into my heart. I don't know if I said it right, but I really want Jesus to come into my heart. And I was just like sitting there like, oh, my gosh. But here's what God did. It was like God took my face and smeared it in the ground of his faithfulness. In that moment, he was teaching me, every prayer you've prayed, I've kept it in a bowl. Every time you've mentioned your daddy's name in, in accordance to my desire to save him, I heard. I never wasted, you, not one prayer that you prayed was wasted, Chad. And he taught me a principle in the diligence of prayer. That when we pray, God hears. And when we pray, church, God is going to answer. Let somebody say amen right there. There was a friend of mine, and, and, and this is my last point on prayer, and then we'll go to the next one. But there was a friend of mine who, who he kept having this, this, like, overwhelming vertigo, right? He was having this overwhelming vertigo. He saw every doctor possible. And the doctors were like, what? We don't, we don't know what's going on. They tried every medicine possible. They tried everything they possibly could for him. And eventually, one doctor he went to just finally said, you know what? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to spend, listen, 20 minutes on your knees Every single morning when you wake up, he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get down on your knees in the morning. And he said, I want you just to get down on your knees and I want you to do something. I want you to get into a position where your heart is elevated above your head. He said, all I want you to do is elevate your heart above your head and sit in this position for 20 minutes and let's see what happens. And my friend said, all the drugs... All the opinions, all the x-rays, everything that I was looking for to try to fix my vertigo, my blurriness, the cloudiness in life. He said everything cleared up simply because I elevated my heart above my head. I got into a prayer position. I said, man, I'm preaching that. Because think about how many times, church, how many problems and how many issues we still have simply because we will not pray. Why does prayer always have to be our last resort instead of our first response? If you want to have power, you've got to grow in your prayer life. P is for prayer. O, everybody say, is for obedience. Obedience, obedience. The Bible says in... In Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 1 and 2, the Bible basically paraphrasing says that if you want to be blessed in the city, you want to be blessed in the field, you want to have your, your baskets full of bread, and you want to be blessed when you're going in and you're coming out. If you want to be blessed, blessed, <laughs> we're blessed in the city. That's, Fred got that understanding from Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 1 and 2. He says, you will be blessed... As you hearken unto the voice of the Lord your God and diligently do, oh, do all you can to obey his voice. See, we love the blessed, blessed, blessed. We sing about it. We dance about it. Late in the midnight hour, God's gone. And we dance, turn it around and around 
And around, I don't have any church folks in here. And around, you guys, are, and we're doing it. They're like, yeah. But here's the thing. We missed the key. In that scripture, the key word is diligent. He says, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. See, what diligence is, is applying pressure in a certain direction over a long period of time. Applied pressure in a certain direction over a long period of time. Meaning, I've got my eyes set, I'm applying pressure, I'm digging my feet in, I'm believing, I'm obeying, and I'm not going uh, to allow anything to distract me or pull me off my post. When you are obedient to God, the Bible literally says that here's, here's what it'll be like. Blessings, these blessings, will literally track you down find you and overtake you. It gives me the image of a football player running back, getting ready to cross the, 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 the touchdown uh, the, the, into the end zone. And, you know, that running back's like, man, it's a last, this is it, the game's a wrap. That linebacker's like, no, no, it's not. And he tracks him down and he chases him down and he literally tackles him. These blessings shall track you down, tackle you, and overtake you when you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. I think about what the best, in my, in my mind, one of the best texts in, in the Bible about uh, obedience is Jesus' first miracle. Now, you have to understand that the law of first mention, I believe, is applicable here because Jesus steps into the scene. Y'all with me? He steps into the scene as, as, as a miracle worker turning water into wine. The Bible says the very first public miracle, this is his public coming out party, is the Son of God. And, and he... He, he literally tells his disciples, go get the water pots and fill them with water. Jesus' mother Mary is like, listen, get your Nike on and just, just do it. Just do whatever he says do. Literally, that's what she says. She says, do whatever he says do. So the disciples go, they get the water pots, and they go and they fill the water pots with water. Hold up, time out. Jesus, we don't need water. We need wine. The party needs to keep going, but they need wine, not water. And so, literally, they go and off of an illogical instruction, something that doesn't necessarily make sense. But just out of their obedience to God, they go and they fill the water pots with water. And on their way back to Jesus, the Bible doesn't say where. You want to know why it doesn't say which step it turned from water into wine? Because if it was like the second or third step or some kind of potion or, or principle to it, then we would start creating all kinds of ways to get your miracle breakthrough and then start selling it on TV and, you know, I'm going to sell a gimmick on, on how you turn your, your breakthrough and your blessing into a miracle right here. But Jesus literally says, take the water and just bring it back to me. Somewhere in between them filling the water pots and them getting it back to Jesus, one of those steps, the water turns to wine. We don't know where. Some of us, it takes a little bit longer than others, but the water turned to wine. And the powerful thing behind that is, church, is that literally, this act of obedience, Jesus restores and redeems time. See, the thing I love about this, and this is what Jesus does, y'all. Jesus is a restorer of time. Whenever we bring him our life, whenever we allow our lives to be into humble submission and obedience to God, what happens is the Lord takes our life and redeems time. See, what takes a long time, it takes wine to be good wine. The Bible said it was the best wine. It takes wine a long time to become good wine. 
it has to ferment over time. That's how you know that it's good. And the, and the principle here is that Jesus literally took in a few steps of humble obedience what takes a very long time, he did in a matter of minutes. What Jesus can do in, the, in a matter of minutes in your obedience to him can, can take a lifetime for a counseling session. It can take a lifetime in, in, in some kind of gimmick or 12-step plan. Jesus, one moment with Jesus can change everything. Everybody say power. power. O, you've got to have obedience. W is the word. If you want to grow in power, you've got to grow in the word. The Bible says that the word became flesh. John 14, this word, the logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. The word, the word of God. The Bible says that it was within our grasp. We beheld him, in other words. The, the only begotten son, full of grace and truth. Y'all with me? That you can be, this is what it says, that Jesus was with them explaining the father, and he was full of grace, and he was full of truth. That's a word for this generation in this day, in this dispensation, this age. Because you can still stand on the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God, and still be full of grace. And so Jesus explains the Father. Come on, somebody. He explains the Father through the word. The Bible says that all scripture is, it's God breathed. It's God breathed. See, in the beginning of time when God made man, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, that he took from the dust of the ground with his hands and he formed man. I was doing this for one, one session and I was like, he formed man. He took the, he took the dirt and I went like this. <laughs> so he formed man like it was a Coke bottle. I said, wait a minute. No, he didn't form man. He formed man. And I put some muscles on that joker. So he took from the ground, the dust of the ground, and he formed man. And then the Bible says he does something very, very peculiar. He inhales into his lungs through his nostrils. And he goes, inhales. And then he, ruachs, which is the Hebrew word for breath or breathe. And he breathes into the nostrils of man the breath of life. And the Bible says the man which he created became a living being. Which let me know it wasn't until... God breathed into him that he became a living being, which means you can be alive and not living. God <sighs> breathes the breath of life. See, I think we too often, we try to find ourselves away from our creator. There's a scripture, there's a scripture in Matthew chapter 16, a situation where Peter comes to Jesus. They have this, this conversation <clears throat> and um, they have this conversation in the garden or in, at Caesarea Philippi. They have a conversation, and Simon Barjona was Peter's name. Simon Barjona, his name means, Simon Barjona means like a little weak stick or a reed. Okay, so I want you to think of like a little weak stick. Like, you know, when I was in Little League, if there was somebody that would go up to bat and they weren't good, a good batter, everybody would say, weak stick, weak stick, come on in. Like everybody was scooped up. Right? Because they want the ball, they were going to hit the ball, it's going to be a little dinker. And, and so everybody say, weak stick, choke up, or come in. And, and that's literally what, what Simon Barjona's name meant. He has a conversation with Jesus in, at Caesarea Philippi, and the Bible says that in their conversation, it goes a little something like this. He goes, hey, uh, what, Jesus asked him, so Simon, what's the word on the street about me? And Simon responds to him. He said, well, some say you're Moses. Some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're a prophet. Some say you're Elijah, et cetera, et cetera. And, 
And he goes, okay, all good and great, Simon. Watch this. It's all good what Granny says I am. It's all good what Pastor says I am. It's all good what everybody in the world and the family says I am. Everybody that knows me around you. Watch this. But who do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? And Simon responds to him. Watch this. And he goes, I say that you are the Christ, the Christos, the anointed one. And Jesus responds to him. So he goes, who do you say I am? Simon responds to him and says, I say you are the Christ, the anointed one. You are who you say you are. Jesus responds to him and says, and I will say to you that you are Peter or Petra, which means rock. He goes, and upon this rock I will build my church and even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You know what the conversation is? See, the more you know about God, the more you know about you. You cannot get into this word, learn more about God, and come out with a lessened understanding of you. I'm all for counseling. I'm all for five love languages and gift assessments and all those things. I'm all for that stuff. Amen? But listen, nothing and no one will be able to tell you more about you than the one that created you. Got to get in the word. Next, E. Everybody say E, exaltation. Exaltation. Everybody say power. 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 E is for exaltation. And exaltation is, is what we are created to do. We are created to worship. We're created to worship, worship God. I think about worship from this sense that it's not just the sense of if you want to grow in power, you can't just be somebody, oh, I come to church, you know, I clap along. I... If you want to grow in power, you have to learn how to become a worshiper. I'm not talking about, it's, it's, you know, when the pastor gets up here, the, or the worship leader gets up here, and then all of a sudden he goes, everybody raise your hands to the gr- good and great God that we're worshiping this morning. And everybody all of a sudden turns into Trianosaurus Rex, like, <laughs> like I'm going to give him a T-Rex praise, like, <laughs> like, raise your hands. You're looking around like, who's watching me? I don't want anybody to watch me raise my hands. See, the great thing about becoming a worshiper is you lose all yourself. It's about, I don't care who's watching I don't care who has an opinion. God has been too good to me for me to keep my hands down and to not bow down. And and if you want to grow in your relationship in power, you have to learn to become a worshiper. And I'm not talking about just creating good worship moments in church. I'm talking about when you're by yourself and your mind is clouded and you're being arrested with all kinds of crazy thoughts. You have to learn how to say, you know what, I'm going to worship God and I'm going to exalt him above my problem. Start telling your problem how big God is and watch how how small your problems become. When you exalt God above your situations in life, your stuff gets small. Magnify the Lord with me. See, Lucifer was the great example of this. The great example of this was in, in, the, in the atmosphere of heaven. Heaven had three archangels. So they were basically generals. So there was Michael, who was over the warring angels. There was Gabriel, who was over the messaging angels. And there was Lucifer, who was over the worshiping angels. And the Bible kind of te- it teaches us like this, that, that Lucifer, <clears throat> the archangel over worship, was, was, was so beautiful. And he was clothed with an array of splendor. 
He was clothed. He had stones all over his body. And underneath his wings, this is how I see it, underneath his wings there were like these big, huge bagpipes or windpipes that would create the, the, the music and the environment and the worship of heaven, the atmosphere of heaven. He would fly before the throne of God in the, in the light of God. He would reflect the glory of God all over in the atmosphere of heaven and create the sound for all of heaven to worship to. <clears throat> Have you ever been to like a, 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 or seen a sunset or the Grand Canyon or something and you just roll up on that and you're just like, whoa, I'm in awestruck wonder of how amazing this is. That's what Lucifer did every moment in heaven. Created the honest for heaven to worship to. See, he would reflect the glory of God. See, Lucifer was not God. He was created in the image of God. He was created, he was a created being, and as long as he was in the light, he would shine the glory of God all over the place. It was all about his proximity and his position. Whenever he got into position and stayed in position, he would reflect the glory of God all over. And see, what happened was, you guys know the story, Bible readers, he started looking at himself, and he started seeing, like, man, I'm kind of sweet. Like, I'm kind of cool. Like, I shine real bright. Shine bright like a diamond. Like, I'm, I'm shining. I'm shining, 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 shining. Yeah, that's what Lucifer was singing in heaven. He's like, all of this winning. He's, he's like, I, all I do is win, 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 no matter what. Like, he's killing it in heaven. I'm like, yo, I'm killing it up here. And he started looking at himself. And he's like, I'm kind of good. I, 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 I. And God's like, no, no, no. You, 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 you. And Isaiah says he sends him out of heaven because of his I statements wanting to exalt himself above God. And the Bible says that when Lucifer fell from heaven, this is amazing, y'all. When he fell from heaven, they saw him falling as an angel of light. But you know, in Genesis chapter 3, when he lands and he's in the garden, he was an angel of light, but now he finds himself as a creepy, crawly thing rolling around in the dirt. How do you go from Someone who creates the atmosphere for the awestruck wonder of God to be released all in the heavens. To someone who crawls on your belly in dirt. I'll tell you this. It was all about his position. All about him staying in the light. It's like the moon. The moon has no light in itself. The moon only is able to shine and lighten up the night when it's in proper proximity to the light of the sun. See, just like the moon, you and I are created in the image and in the likeness of God. We are not the light, but we are called to reflect the light. The only way we reflect the light is when we're in proper position to the light. Worship helps us get in that proper position. Well, I thought I started asking the question, well, I thought when, when the angels fail, okay, so if Lucifer fell, the Bible says he takes a third of the heavenly hosts with him. So if all of the third of the heavenly hosts in heaven were gone too, this is my mind. I got a big head. I, I like to tell people I don't, you know, I don't have necessarily a big head. I got a lot of my mind. And so I'm thinking, like, <laughs> I'm thinking, like, so, God, what happened in heaven? Is there a gap in heaven? Y'all with me? 
Is there a gap in heaven? And God started showing me in the scriptures. Like, no, there's not a gap in heaven. Yes, the angels have fallen. But there's an RSVP with your name on it at the table of worship in heaven. So here's what he showed me. He said, the church, the redeemed, the blood blot, the ones who God has saved are the ones that have a seat reserved at the table in the heavenlies. And so when you worship, you respond to your RSVP. When you raise your hands and you say, God, you did it. You saved my soul. You are awesome. You are mighty. You are who you say you are. You do what you say you do, God. And I'm a, I'm a, a living witness and a testimony of that. And I worship. And when I worship, I respond to my invitation to the table in heaven. The Bible says, let the redeemed of the Lord not look so, not act so, but let the redeemed of the Lord say so we worship we take our rightful place if you want to grow in power you've got to grow in your worship life exaltation exaltation p is prayer o is w is e is exaltation and r is this is i grew up in the 80s this is where the mary poppins comes in just a spoonful of sugar helps them y'all are too young for that we used to rent it on VHS. My mom liked showing us those old Disney movies. But Mary Poppins would come and she'd give them medicine, but she'd give them a spoonful of sugar because a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. This is the medicine now. The medicine is our. If you want to grow in your, your power in God, you've got to grow in our, your relationships. I'm done, y'all, but I'm going to end like this. Wait. I'm going to end like this. <laughs> the cross goes two ways. It goes up to God, and it goes out to man. You see, when Jesus came and he died on the cross, listen to me, church, and musicians, you can come. When Jesus died on the cross, he was redeeming and restoring our relationship to God. He was redeeming and restoring our rightful place to God. But, y'all, the cross goes two ways. What Jesus was also doing was Jesus was restoring our relationship one another how can we say that we have read the redemptive work of Jesus in our lives and in our hearts and in our souls but our relationships are trash how can we say we love that's how Jesus said it. how can you say you love God and you don't love your brother our relationships are a direct reflection of the depth of your relationship with God you cannot tell me you love God and you're all deep and in his presence and you're mean and nasty to people. You can't tell me you, 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 are, you are such a worshiper of God, but all you do is backbite and gossip on folks. Oh, just a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine. Go down. Our relationships, the health of our relationships are a depiction of the health of our relationship with God. Where there's brokenness in our relationships... God requires that we get it right. God requires that we become, not them, that we become like Jesus. Jesus didn't offend. He didn't, he didn't offend nobody. He didn't do anything wrong. He was the afflicted. Yet he still came to the ones who afflicted him and laid down his life. He pursued reconciliation. 
Thanks for listening to this week's message. If you would like to know more about Embassy City Church, please visit us at embassycity.com and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Embassy Irving.